0: Hey everyone, welcome to What Do You Want Be When You Grow Up? I'm Katie, and I'm your host. You know, people are always asking like, Hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'm like, well, I don't know. And I don't know what to say. Because, to tell you the truth, I really don't know what I want to do when I grow up. Well, after listening to my podcast, you guys will know just what to say when people ask you that question. Because in this podcast, We talk to people about their jobs and what they do. You guys might think that you know what people do in their jobs and then BAM we hit you with some top-secret information about just what people do in their day-to-day job lives. Hopefully this inside information will help you decide just what you want to be when you grow up. So what do you want to be when you grow up? What? everyone, today's
1: trial is about English teaching. We will be talking to our guest, Mr. Jeff Bryant, who is currently an English teacher in Davis, California since 2003. But since the pandemic forced schools to close, Mr. Bryant has been teaching from home. He mostly teaches in the core of students who are identified as intellectually gifted, and his classes are more focused on philosophy and academic writing rather than on traditional literary fiction analysis. Before Mr. Bryant was a teacher, he was a salesman and before that an actor. He has had a super interesting and colorful life and he believes in making connections through storytelling and is fascinated with the aspect of teaching that involves developmental psychology. I am so excited to talk to him and get to know him today. Hi, Mr.
0: Brian. Welcome
1: to the Cape. It's so great to have you on the show.
2: Thank you. It's nice to be here.
1: So our first question for you is, how long have you been a teacher?
2: Well, I started teaching in 2003. I was hired as a sub and shortly after getting my teaching credential. And I've been in the same place really ever since. So I've been pretty fortunate. The very first job I had as a teacher just transitioned into my current position pretty easily and fairly quickly. You know, a lot of teachers, it takes a number of years for them to find their place, you know, and for me, it happened pretty quickly.
1: That's really cool. So how did you know you wanted to become a teacher?
2: Well, I didn't at first. I'm one of those people who found teaching after a sort of roundabout journey. Many people who get into teaching know quite early, And they become teachers rather young. Most teachers I know begin teaching at around age 24 or 25, right out of college, and they knew they wanted to be a teacher. That was not my experience. I had other careers prior to that. And I didn't really become a teacher until my almost mid-30s. So I came about 10 years later than most people do.
1: Yeah, like I know someone who right now she's like, I really want to become a teacher like when I grow up. And that's like what she really wants to do. So did you ever have like a dream job as a kid?
2: Well, when I was a young person, I wanted to be an actor very much. And I really enjoyed it and got a lot from it. And it worked out for a while. You know, I was able to pay for college from it, from performing arts. And- things like that. But eventually, when I was in my early 20s, and I really started to pursue it as a career, I found that it really wasn't my liking. One, it involved far too much a kind of commitment I found really pretty difficult to sustain. You know, to be in the arts as a career, you have to be very, very tough minded, you have to be very singularly dedicated to that pursuit. And it's very difficult to make a go of it unless you have a sort of twenty-four-seven dedication to it at that time. I wouldn't know what it's like now. But I just found this, I couldn't sustain it and be happy. So I went into sales because it seemed the next best thing. And selling was also, it was successful, but it wasn't personally fulfilling in any way. You know, with, with sales, it was a productive career I had for a little while, about eight years, and, and on it supported me, supported the beginning of my married life and, and gave me some options. And, and the financial part was good, but the sort of underlying fulfillment aspect was still missing. So I was inspired by what happened on nine eleven to become a teacher because I, I saw that a lot of people that I, I lived in New York at that time, I was in sales and I had moved to California to start family because I was originally from California and wanted to be near family that I have anybody near me in New York. So moving back to California, I was still going to be in sales. But when 9-11 happened, it kind of changed the path of my life. I had been personally affected by what happened on 9-11 as I used to work in the World Trade Center when I was in sales. around that area and it kind of made me realize that uh, disasters sometimes can make you reflect great loss and tragedy it can make you reflect on your own
1: yeah.
2: directions you know and um so in that i just decided i i wanted a different path i didn't know what that was but i um gave teaching a go and i immediately found that oh okay I had a sense almost immediately from the first teaching classes that I took that this was something I wanted. And so although it took me a long time to get to this career, I really attached to it immediately and I haven't really looked back. It's what I want to be is in education. And I'm so grateful, you know, for all the things that happened that finally led me to this happiness.
1: Well, it's really inspiring. So like after you've decided you wanted to become a teacher, what's kind of like schooling did you have to go through?
2: I wanted to leave sales, but you still have to make money to live. And so I went to night school. I went to a program that allowed me to take classes at night while I worked during the day. And what I did during the day is I became a substitute teacher. So, you know, subbing was a great way to make money while I learn to be a teacher at night. When I first started teaching, you know, I thought, well, you just give people what you know and then give them assignments and grade them. And it's so much more than that. And there's an art and a craft to teaching that I really found fascinating, continue to find really fascinating and inspiring. I like that I came to teaching as an older person in some ways, because a lot of my students, they have, you know, curious minds. A lot of my students don't necessarily always feel like, you know, they know who they are yet, you know, and they sometimes feel guilt at not knowing at age 14 what they want to do. And I think sometimes I'm able to to be of service to them because to tell them it's okay to be whatever you are. And, you know, as a person who found my path in life relatively later, I'm perfectly fine. And I can't help but wonder if that helps give kids a sense of comfort in their own paths, you know? Not everybody okay. needs to be who they are all the time.
1: How did you know you wanted to become an English teacher, like in that
2: field? I didn't. I wanted to be a kindergarten teacher. When I first started, I wanted to be a kindergarten teacher. That was my goal because when I was very small, I had kind of a rough time of it sometimes, and I felt lonely And I had a kindergarten teacher who really meant a lot to me. She made an absolutely huge impact on my life. This kindergarten teacher, her name was Betty Peck. And she was a very well-known teacher in my hometown. In fact, there has been a movement to build a statue of her. And I maintained a relationship with her through my life. And when I decided to become a teacher, I called her and she he talked to me, and I realized I wanted to be a kindergarten teacher. But at the time, in the early 2000s, when I was thinking about being a teacher, it was actually quite strange for a grown male to want to be a kindergarten teacher. It was seen as mm-hmm. odd. And to be honest, there was a little bit of bias against it that I had discovered. I was kind of advised that it's not easy as a male to get a job as a kindergarten teacher, because people with whatever societal prejudices, that I think we've grown past some of those in the last 20 years or so, that they just kind of looked suspiciously at grown men who wanted to be around very young children. And so it was hard to sort of explain to people in a way where they wouldn't raise their eyebrows. So then when I was looking for jobs, I really couldn't find a position as a kindergarten teacher. And a sub offering to long-term sub came by from Davis. So I jumped on that. And at first I was a social studies teacher and I really enjoyed it. I loved teaching social studies, really enjoyed it, thought, all right, that's a, and social studies is an incredibly fun subject to teach. Most teachers today, when they're coming out of schools, want to teach social studies. It's considered like a fun subject for people, especially if you're a historical enthusiast like me, but to get permanently hired, sometimes you kind of have to be flexible. And I have what's called a multiple subject teaching credential. So I can teach in any number of subjects. And a permanent opening came for English. The social studies position was, was a temporary position. So then I transitioned over to English. And I have been teaching that class ever since. So I've been doing this basically the, the, the same thing ever since, yeah. so, which is fun because now I've had sort of multiple generations of kids come through. So I've taught kids and then I teach their younger brothers and sisters. And that enables them to use their older brothers and sisters essays because no. that, and hopefully I will have forgotten. But it's nice. And my job allows for a wonderful amount of autonomy and creativity. I'm allowed to basically design my own curriculum. Because of the the relative popularity of the program, I'm given a lot of trust and creative license to teach in a way that I like and using materials I like. I'm not faced with a lot of the curricular sort of inflexibility that some district, some teachers experience in other districts. I'm pretty free to do what I think is right. I really... Love that. It's rare in this profession, actually.
1: Yeah, because in your class, you usually learn about, like, things regular English teachers wouldn't teach us, like philosophy. Yeah. So that's
2: yeah, really cool. The thrust of the class, and most people who take it notice that. That's actually probably the main difference people notice, is the material that we use in classes different from what might be conventional English classes. In a normal experience of English most people will read either a sh- work of literature, of age-appropriate literature, fiction, and analyze the elements of it and learn to, say, write an essay, the, uh, some kind of on a topical subject matter, usually in response to the literature in some way. Now, my class is similar to that, but instead of traditional fiction, we use philosophy as a jumping off point. So instead of analyzing literature such as what's the plot, what's the initial incident, what are the elements of this plot, what's the essential conflict, we might discuss those things. But then what we'll do when it comes time to analyze the the story we're reading is I will use the story as a comparison to some type of philosophical or psychological or idea or sociological idea or concept. And so What they'll often write is a sort of comparative analysis. Um, So, for instance, we'll study the idea of the psychological theory of identity and how people formulate philosophically and psychologically individual identity. And then we'll read a story in which a character struggles with that. Or we will read uh, philosophy and discuss ideas of philosophy. It allows for more sort of uh, intellectual inquiry, and it makes it, can sometimes make it feel and seem quite different and unconventional uh, experience in English. So it can be difficult to describe. I notice sometimes kids will laugh when trying to describe it to their peers because they sort of find it strange in terms of how do you describe it. you know. And they end up saying, hopefully, something like, it's just different. And mm-hmm. then they go, it's fun, you know.
1: It is fun, yeah.
2: Yeah. So... I mean, I I truly believe in some basic theories of education or pedagogy teaching children, which is that you should teach kids, you know, you want different types of rigor aligned to your expectations. And one of the rigors that schools are very good at focusing on is administrative rigor, the idea of organizing, keeping your assignments in place, scheduling yourself, knowing what your homework is and completing it and arranging things so that you can do that. Uh, whether alone or in groups. And that administrative rigor is a super important part of learning and education. And a lot of students I teach are very challenged that way, but many actually thrive under those sites of expectations, and they like that. Now, a second type of expectation that schools strive for is academic rigor. Academic rigor is assignments that are challenging. Usually what that means is the number of moving parts in the assignment. Is challenging. So you have to gather together X number of resources. And it's all about how many stories you read, how many books you read. It's very quantifiable kind of learning. Uh, academic rigor usually is associated with quantifiable numbers. Like when you look at uh, standardized tests, a lot of that tests your academic capacity. And so academic learning tends to Line up with things that can be quantified, things that can be counted, the number of things, the number of right answers. And those are usually the two main rigors that schools focus on with kids today. And a lot of that stuff is very quantifiable. But my philosophy of teaching focuses on a third, which many teachers focus on too. I just believe that I sometimes focus on it a little more. And that's not because of me, but more in response to the kinds of students I teach. When you're working with kids who are identified as gifted, they have a sort of misunderstood need. And many think that gifted kids need academic rigor, and they do. And they sometimes need heightened or more intense academic rigor. And that is true in some cases. But quite often, that doesn't lead to a satisfying learning experience. And the third rigor is intellectual rigor. And to me, in my own experience, that's actually a very misunderstood idea, the idea of intellectual rigor. Many people believe that if you give kids academic challenge, that quantifiable challenge, that that's kind of the same thing as intellectual challenge. But my own experience in school was quite different. I found that a lot of things that might be academically rigorous were not necessarily intellectually challenging or stimulating in any way. Just because an assignment is challenging to complete doesn't mean I've grown or been fulfilled in any way as a sort of thinking person. And that intellectual, that ability to expand your consciousness, expand your critical thinking ability, expand your ability to consider, I found sometimes lacking. So I felt that way in my own experience with education. And so one of the things I try to do with my course is to focus as much and even more at times on the intellectual rigor, even at the expense of things like administrative rigor. So if I were to offer what makes my class feel different, I would say it's probably that in terms of the design of the class. Now, that isn't because I'm a unique and interesting teacher. It really isn't. Mm. It's because I have unique and interesting students. Almost any teacher in my situation would respond the same way. It would be a natural, you respond to the students you have. And who you are as a teacher is largely shaped by the type of students you teach as much as it is your own qualities as a teacher. So it's not that I'm unique. It's that the students I teach are unique and have sometimes a different need that then my job is to provide and adjust to. And I believe that that adjustment towards intellectual rigor is how I meet their need. I don't know. I mean, Katie, you've experienced it. So, um, do you see what I'm talking about?
1: Okay. Your assignments are more like something that gets you thinking and, you know, less of just like, a pile of work. It's more like work
2: that gets you
1: thinking mm-hmm. and makes you like, you know, yeah.
2: really understand what you're reading. Right. But um, so, it's hard to link to like, what does this have to do with English? <laughs> so it's kind of like that. So kids have a hard time sort of, I've noticed kids sometimes have a hard time describing what they like about the class. They just sort of like it. And, you know, kids don't necessarily have the language that I'm using here to describe the experience of the class. You know, so But hopefully, kids enjoy it. And when you're young, and at this stage of development, it's very important that kids make meaningful connections. And for young people, a meaningful connection is likely to be in some manner emotional. Uh, Kids tend to have a lot of emotional cognizance at this age, and they attach a sense of emotion to every memory and every feeling and every thought. And so you want kids to have a safe place to explore their sort of emotional awareness of the world. And you want to make that as positive as you can. Because kids at this age, they remember things, but they remember things if there's an emotional attachment to them far more. And when people look back on these years of their life, they often remember the emotional experience much more so than the cognitive. Yeah, I would agree. So nobody really remembers what seventh grade is like, but they remember what it felt like. So you want to make sure that when they experience seventh grade and later ninth grade, that it's a positive feeling associated with this. A class where they felt, number one, challenged, two, respected. And I would say respected, it might be even more important, where they felt first and foremost respected as a human being, two, challenged, and three, even cared for like really cared for in a nurturing sort of way. And by caring for someone, I mean, they felt like a person was investing in them. You know, it is a very nice feeling as a child to feel that somebody invests themselves in you and that somebody cares enough about you that they want to invest in you in some way. But not you, like in terms of your product, like you're only as good as your product. Not like that, because that's very superficial. What I mean is you as a person. And so you want to convey that with a child and it doesn't have to be super deep. And it doesn't have to be this sort of uh, hyper romantic, you know, it doesn't have to be all this, oh, you know, and like a movie, it doesn't have to be like, you know, this sort of these ways movies are sort of hyper emotionally like romantic literature or something, not romance, like love and affection, but romance, like emotional heightenedness, but it doesn't have to be like that, but it can still be meaningful. You can have, a profound impact on kids if you can sort of really make them feel like you respect and care about them. And kids want to feel like that, I believe. And that's as important as anything else. So I've truly, over time, become more and more considerate of kids beyond just what I'm teaching them and more how I'm nurturing them. And I think that that is an area of education that I really did not know about when I first started teaching. And yet it has become a sort of really a part of what I do in a way that I found very surprising. Nowadays, I'm finding that I'm getting more and more sort of um, positive feedback to it. When I first started proposing years ago that the social-emotional nurturing of the kid was more important than their academic performance, you know, 15 years ago, when I first started proposing teaching this class this way, they, I had some people say, well, what are you talking about? You know, that touchy-feely, that's weird and kind of creepy. And and they would say, like, just focus on their test scores. And like. And other people totally believed it too. And we kind of, there's a group of teachers at Holmes who really latched onto that concept. And I was one of them, but there was a huge group of us at Holmes. It became kind of a, under the guidance of a principal we had a few years back, it became a sort of philosophy of the school that connected this that getting the kids meaningfully connected to the school was more important than their test scores. And that became, under the guidance and encouragement of a principal, we had a sort of identity for our school. And a lot of us, myself included, were very inspired by this. And that allowed me, with their inspiration, these older teachers who cleared the way, who made it okay for me to do these kinds of experiments and to teach this way, so I'm part of a continuum of this school's own identity, and so I try to be a part of what Holmes was as a school trying to do when I first came here, and a group of us decided to really go gangbusters on this approach to learning.
1: <laughs> so, could you describe what a day in your life would be like?
2: Sure. On well, a regular year, what I would do is I would get up pretty early. I get up around five thirty to get ready. Now, I believe in, although I'm pretty dressed down today, I usually wear a suit and tie and to work. I truly believe that for me, I like to get up, get dressed and look very professional and very adult. I just find it engenders trust and a sense of adult stature that allows kids to trust what I'm doing a little more and allows a little bit of authority that you need sometimes. So I do that. So I consider how I dress a part of my job and as part of the sales part of teaching, you know, and the selling of it and the performance art of it. So I get up very early to get dressed, get ready, get organized. And then I drive off to work. I live about an hour away. So I usually have about an hour commute. And then I get to school. I usually try to get to school an hour early so I can sort of get my game face on, be prepared, know what I have to do that day. There's always some weird email you're getting. First thing in the morning that can totally change the direction of your day. So I always want to make sure those things don't throw me. Although I try to keep a very spontaneous classroom, I don't like to teach spontaneously. I like to have everything planned out so that I can be spontaneous in the classroom. So once I you know figured out uh, everything for that day and how it lines up to the rest of the week, uh, then I'm ready and then the kids come in. Then I go about the teaching. I usually teach according to a weekly agenda where each day is assigned a typical activity. And I try to keep that very consistent. I think that structural consistency is very, it helps kids. I think it's really important to them. That kids need to know what to expect each day, especially when they have this broad range of teachers they're juggling. They like to have a sense of they know what's coming and what we're going to do on each day. And it can really help them to know that we'll do grammar on Wednesdays, you know, that Fridays will be a philosophical discussion. Thursdays will be vocab and usually writing instruction. Mondays and Tuesdays, will usually be going over some kind of literature or study guides or some type of analysis activity or information and direct instruction. And so the week is highly structured in terms of the activities. So I go through class by class. I usually teach, you know, two or three different classes, but with multiple sections per class. Then usually in the afternoon, uh, after that, uh, at lunch, I usually open up my classroom and kids come in to eat lunch. And I kind of just stay in the background, working on stuff on the computer and allowing them to chat and socialize. Sometimes, I remember,
1: they, you know, Girly Fun Friday.
2: Yes. And then on Fridays, we usually have some type of fun club activity. We, we have a funny sort of club called girly fun Friday. That's right. Where we watch really cheesy kids, Netflix movies and developmentally, you know, boys and girls are dealing with a lot of psychic energy to go in different directions. And often boys are so dominant in society and encouraged to be so sort of aggressively dominant that I have found that sometimes my female students, the young women need space they sometimes need a decompression away from the boys and their sort of intensity. So I started doing this thing where it's a girls club where they just silently watch movies. And it's been really interesting because boys really aren't allowed in there because they interrupt and need to make comment and all that. And mm-hmm. it's just exhausting to deal with. So the girls just sit in the room and quietly watch a movie and enjoy it. And it's the darndest thing. Like, my every instinct as a male is to like call and make comment on the movie, but I know I'm not allowed to or they'll kick me out. So I just kind of yes. stay silent, you know, and sometimes I get a little like edgy and I walk out and start hanging with some boys somewhere like them. But, you know, and then in the afternoons, usually I have some type of creative activity I'm doing Um in the spring. It's usually coaching track in the fall. It's usually directing a play. So I usually do that after school from about three to five thirty and then I drive home. So I keep pretty busy. I'm usually at school around 8 o'clock, and I usually leave around 5.30, typically. Not on Wednesdays, we usually have staff meetings. So on Wednesdays, typically, I will have some kind of staff meeting after school goes to about 5.30. So it's a pretty nice scheduled series of events for me. It makes it so if I'm done with a play or not coaching, I get out around 3.30, and it feels like bliss. Uh, Usually, though, I have about an hour's worth of grading a day to do. I desperately procrastinate on grading. Mm -hmm. Very difficult for me. It's probably number one shortfall I have as a teacher is, is I just hate grading essays, but I do it. I grit my teeth and do it because you have to, it's a job. So that's usually my typical day.
1: That's pretty cool. So I know like you've been a teacher for a very long time and I'm sure you have like a bunch of different experiences that you've had Mm -hmm. as an English teacher. So like, are there any cool stories or things that you got to do that you would like to tell our audience
2: about? Oh, well, I mean, there's a lot as a teacher, you probably will never really get super wealthy, but you will have wonderful opportunity to see and meet a lot of really interesting kids and a lot of opportunities to look very, very silly and foolish. A lot of the things that I remember are times when I sort of mess up in a very public way. And I don't mind. I kind of embrace the idea that I am kind of an idiot. And sometimes, you know, that I can be kind of socially awkward or intense. And I encourage kids to kind of laugh at me a little bit with that. And I think it eases kids, you know, minds with me and how they think about me and allows them to relax around me a little bit and feel like they can be vulnerable too. So I uh, kind of do that a lot. So I have a lot of stories about just doing and saying things that are kind of silly. And kids usually pass those stories on, you know, so that you start to have a sort of like, stories about me kind of get exaggerated over time. It's kind of fun, you know, to hear some of the things that I've supposedly done. I tend to be very animated as a teacher. And sometimes that can lead to uh, wonderful crap You know, one time I was trying to demonstrate this scene that happened in a book. I ended up going into a a laundry bag of lost and found items and uh, started throwing them willy-nilly around the room as I was sort of describing what was happening in the book. And I accidentally pulled out a shoe and flung it upward and it completely shattered the overhead light just. And so the whole, like, case with the light and the light itself just sort of exploded and fell and fell all over the class <laughs> and the kids were like, you know, very memorable, horrible experience, you know. And of course, every time I do one of these things, I always go, why am I doing, you know, like, what was wrong with me? What was I thinking? You know, so, you know, I'll do a lot of things where um, it's just funny sort of eccentric things. Mostly a lot of the kids tend to collect stories about my various eccentricities the strange things I say, you know, quotes or whatever. And every few years I will get a group of kids that collect like a, you know, like a book of quotes of weird things I've said. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. We yeah. um, have yeah, one of those. Oh, you it's did? Yeah. Oh God. So yeah. So kids do that. Yeah, they've done that. All and I try to be very engaging and animated, use a lot of energy in teaching, just use an enormous amount of animated energy. Funny stories, you know, there's a lot of them, but there's a lot of sort of sad stories too. When you try to develop meaningful relationships, that means you're going to see a lot of pain. You know, unfortunately, you're going to see a lot of the pain that kids experience. And sadly, they can experience a lot of it. But you can also feel like you can be a source of comfort. I mean, maybe you can't truly help every kid. A lot of kids need to just get through it, you know, and just let life get them through it. But you can be there to be of comfort. If not help. And sometimes I've noticed that a lot of kids, if they come to me with a the trouble, they don't necessarily want my advice. They just want my ear. And I've learned to actually withhold advice from kids because I think most of them are more able to work it out. They just need somebody to hear them out first. I think if you are too aggressive in trying to give advice and help, you actually alienate the kid who is more than capable of figuring out the answer to their problems and often even knows the answer. They just need someone to hear them out. So I often tend to be more of an ear than a source of advice. And I tell a lot of stories in my classroom. I will tell a lot of stories from my life that happened. Popular, amusing stories that kind of amuse kids. And, you know, it breaks down their sort of barriers. And and it allows for a lot of humor. I use a lot of humor in my teaching. A lot of jokes. Lots and lots. And you try to keep them laughing and really entertained. It's you know, part of the performance art of teaching. You know, it's not just about them working. You also do have to sort of keep their brains amused because when they're in a state of amusement and enjoyment, they are more likely to engage and be willing to engage and give of themselves. So it lets their barriers down and it allows them to be more open and expressive and take risks. So it's, it's fun. You have to kind of lure kids into a risk-taking mode. Mm. So it's a little me of I wouldn't say manipulation, but it's done with a purpose in mind.
1: That's cool. So I have like a bunch of friends that are interested in like going into education. Mm-hmm. And so like what kind of advice would you give someone who wants to become an English teacher, like any teacher in general when they grow up?
2: If you want to be a teacher, there are so many programs available to you. You will need a degree, but Every college and university offers some kind of teaching program, and if not, it's easy to get into one. And here's the reason. We are always seeming to face teacher shortages, so the state is always desperate for teachers. It's sometimes difficult to find that first position, but if you're patient, you almost always get one. With regard to being a good teacher, I would say that it's really important to know which age group you work well with. Every different age has a different need. And every age processes information differently. The way a third grader processes information and what their needs are in terms of what they need from a teacher in order to process successfully and have a positive experience can be very different from what a seventh grader needs. Also, how you bring that out of the kid and foster that in a kid And how you interact with a child will be informed enormously by those developmental stages. The biggest mistake I see teachers making, young teachers, is they don't pay enough attention to the developmental psychology of the kids they teach. They pay an enormous amount of attention to subject matter knowledge, and that's great to know a lot about, say, math, but you're going to get much farther understanding what kids are like. And to do that, I believe that developmental psychology and understanding the psychology of the kids you teach and what their developmental stages are psychologically is critical. For instance, one of the major considerations of this sort of developmental stage understanding is how kids think. Young kids have enormous challenge thinking in the abstract, and older kids don't they find it easier. So somewhere along the line, children begin to be able to think in the abstract. This is a very well-known idea first started by a guy named Jean P.J. And the ability of the kid's abstract reasoning capacity is really critical to understand if you want to reach them. You have to know The degree to which that individual child is able to conceive in the abstract, because it opens up lots of possibilities, but also creates lots of hindrances if they can. not So you've got to be able to work with that. And if you don't know that, it's really hard to give meaningful instruction, I believe. Also, you need to know how they process emotionally and morally, I would say, at these stages. I believe all education is moral education in some way or another all of it teaches them how to be human beings and helps them develop a moral concept of themselves. And you want it to be positive, So you have to understand how kids are wired to think about the world around them. For example, many young people will look at something good as because an authority approves of it. Then it shifts in adolescence to peer approval. And then they start to get an idea of that they're a part of a society, and it expands and expands, and not all that is developmental psychology and parts of it in sociology. I think it's really important for teachers to know these things to understand it because it will help them understand the kids they teach. If subject matter knowledge is really important, but teaching is way more than just giving assessments and delivering instruction it is really about making meaningful connections with the kids. And especially in early adolescence where I teach. It is why junior high age is seen as so challenging. But for me, I find it actually quite not hard. I mean, I find it super rewarding and very challenging, but not like, I don't know how to do this. Because I think I'm matched up well with this age range. However, if you were to put me in, say, a third grade classroom, you will see the worst teacher perhaps you've ever seen. Like, I just, I may not know how to connect to that age. I've seen it with teachers who sometimes when they're doing classroom management, they will manage their class in a high school age level. The way they would talk is as if they're talking to a fourth grader. And when kids sense that, they get deeply offended. They get, they get very like, resistant to that teacher because mm-hmm. they feel sort of insulted. Well, that is what I'm talking about. That sort of you've got to match your teaching to the developmental stage of that child, you know, and if you don't understand where that kid is at, then it's really going to be a tough time being an effective teacher.
1: Sure.
2: Uh, it informs how you communicate, the kinds of assignments you give, how you treat them, how you respond to them and, and how you show respect to a 12-year-old, is going to be very different than how you show respect to, say, a 10-year-old. So you have to be very, very mindful of those things, very mindful. And one of the challenges of today is people are putting their kids into school at a far younger age, and this really skews things. When I first started, it would be very rare you would see somebody who is 11 years old in seventh grade. Now, very common. I have quite a few number of students who in seventh grade are 11 years old. And they're very young for junior high developmentally, emotionally. But what this has done has created a really interesting area of educational focus. Now I've talked about the three foci of expectation and rigor. I think today, one of the real interesting sort of new frontiers of education with educators like me is the fourth rigor. I don't believe we paid near enough attention to it in the past, but Lately, and I think this year has been a year where it has really, really radiated with people, is the idea of social-emotional rigor. That students need an opportunity, just as much as they need academic challenge, they need to be able to navigate and be authentically challenged and deal with social-emotional growth. They need to be able to navigate life socially and emotionally. And one of the biggest areas of difficulty in distance learning, this distance learning environment, which we find ourselves last year, is in this social emotional wellness aspect of education. The idea that kids are isolated and they are becoming sad and depressed and detached and all their social emotional wellness is kind of slipping. And so it's become a major area of concern. I would say much more so than any academic consideration. Many parents I meet are very concerned their kid is falling academically behind, so the academic rigor is slipping. But I think just as much parents are noticing the importance of social-emotional learning in education this year, more than almost any year of my experience prior. Now, as a person who for... Well, a long time now has been really concerned with the social-emotional aspect of the kids learning. It has been quite satisfying this year to feel like one of the areas I really have been passionate about is finally getting the respect it deserves. And again, the school I teach at has always, to me, been filled with teachers who are like-minded about the importance of that, especially there are some uh, new teachers we've hired who seem really talented in that area. Miss Benuelos, who is a, a new health teacher. She's been teaching in you know mm-hmm. for about three years. To me, I look at her as kind of the next age of teaching. I sort of see her as the next vanguards because her way of teaching is all about the social, emotional, meaningful connection with a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: I've heard this, this quarter. And yeah, I feel you like her that? class is like definitely you know, focuses more on like, what are you comfortable with? Are you okay
2: kind of thing? Yes. And to me, she is very representative of that new type of teacher. 15 years ago, she would have people going, oh, excuse me, you need to focus on their test scores, please. Because it was all about what are your test score numbers? What are your test score numbers? And if a kid had any type of social emotional problem, the teacher was told explicitly, send them to the counselor you don't deal with that. And now that has largely sort of starting to vanish where teachers more and more are willing to address those concerns. And I think it's a wonderful direction education is, is taking. But I think the sadness of this last year, and the inhibitions of this last year in terms of teaching has really brought it to light as a really valid need. And I'm looking forward to The idea that when we get back, that this will be given greater respect in terms of what good teaching means. I think it's been a really positive outcome from something that's been very, not very positive. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it gives me a lot of hope, you know, and it's certainly something I'm very passionate about because it goes to the heart of what I think good teaching is. You know, with, with my statements earlier on the idea of the emotional memory. And I'm very pleased to see education embracing this.
1: So a question, you know, I kind of always wondered was, do teachers like actually get the whole summer off?
2: Not really. No, they do. They get a fair number of weeks. Usually most teachers have about three weeks to decompress. And a lot of that time is actually spent really emotionally and mentally decompressing. Teaching involves an enormous amount of energy, but also like physical energy, but also involves an enormous amount of sort of psychic energy. Because you have to understand that you're given a sort of group of 150 kids and your job is to care about them. And this investment can be exhausting. It can be very exhausting over the course of nine months to just have that much concern for that number of people, as well as managing the concerns you have for your own family, your own children your spouse. So most teachers I know are pretty tired at the end of the year. The younger ones, not as much. So they usually end up teaching summer school. But the older teachers, most I know, tend to be pretty spent with all that psychic energy. And it's more about that type of energy, the mental energy of teaching that wears you out than the physical. And so most teachers decompress for about three weeks. We don't even talk to each other. Teachers, like, they all just vanish for a little while. And it's like, we don't even talk to each other usually. And then we start to get this itch around July, <laughs> right around mid, late July. And then people start coming back. They start doing workshops. Now you have your summer workshops to do upkeep on your job. There's a lot of upkeep on your job. You have to like keep abreast of the latest trends in education. You got to keep abreast of the latest literature of the latest job changes or district changes too. A lot of them happen over the summer and you kind of got to, and if we're going to employ the latest and greatest plan for the school, those usually start materializing around summer. You know, what we're planning to do the next year. So there's a lot of background work that happens in the summer. And then that usually really kicks into gear late July, like early August. Usually by August 3rd or 4th, we are back. We are back running or usually back setting up our classrooms, doing our planning for the year, talking, collaborating, and it's go time. And so we usually get about, I would say, three or four weeks of good, solid time off. And I love it. This last year, that didn't happen. I know of very few teachers last summer who had a summer off. Almost every teacher I knew worked all through the summer to plan for distance learning. Almost every teacher. So a lot of teachers are very tired. Right now. There's a lot of teachers who are very, very tired and they're keeping it up, but they are more tired than I've seen teachers in many years. Me, no, not so much. I'm pretty energetic. Yeah. I'm pretty good. That's good, yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. So those are all the questions that we have prepared for you. Thank you so much for
2: Yes, thank you like, for being able
1: to meet with us it, and have an interview. Uh,
2: thank you for spending time with me and, and allowing me to tell you about this career that I love so much. You know, if anybody out there is considering being a teacher, it's a wonderful career. It can be hard. It can be challenging. Sometimes you can feel like you're unappreciated, uh, can be frustrating, but only because really you care so much. But the caring in itself is the reward to me. It's an enormous rewarding career, personally, very fulfilling. I'm so glad and grateful to be a teacher and to meet kids and be a part of their life for even a short time
1: yeah okay well thank you so much it was really
0: inspiring yeah, I learned a lot. Very
2: helpful. Yeah. oh well, fantastic thank you very much.
0: <laughs> well guys that's it i'm katie your host and thank you so much for listening to today's episode of what do you want to be when you grow up hopefully you guys learned a lot and if you want to learn more about the person i interviewed today check the show notes for a link well guys I'll see you next time. Katie out.